This is the Baymont Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, I am joined by Josh Basset to discuss spiritual leadership and the conversations with Jesus in the temple courts at the Festival of Dedication. John 10, we're going to be wrapping up the chapter today. Uh, but first, Josh, you have some news that you want to share. I do. And uh, unfortunately, it's not very good news, but I'll just rip the Band-Aid off. Uh so I have I have cancer. Um and I shouldn't laugh when I say that, but it's uh <laughs> you know what can you do but laugh. Um I've had serious health problems since I was a kid, so this isn't something that came totally out of the blue, but um yeah, back in October, um we had some uh normal tests that I have to get performed every once in a while to check on my health and we found some weird looking cells. And uh, I'm very thankful for all my doctors here at uh, in Cincinnati. They sent us over to the Mayo Clinic, who's been taking great care of us. Um, just got back from undergoing some chemo and radiation, but Mayo was able to confirm that I have a bile duct cancer. And, you know, it's, it's not great news, obviously, but um, like the, it, for those of you who don't know, bile duct cancer is uh, notorious for being very, very difficult to diagnose. And usually they don't catch it until it's way too late to do anything about. So it's kind of miraculous that we even caught it this early and, um, and Mayo's a, an incredible place. You know, we, we rag on Western civilization <laughs> a lot here, but I am extremely thankful for all our advances in, uh, medical technology and stuff like that. So it's been, uh, it's been a journey. And, uh, right now we're just waiting on a new liver. I'm going to be going through a liver transplant up at the Mayo clinic and it's, uh, quite a process. So, uh, I wanted to share this with everyone. One, because, you know, if you're on the Baymoss Slack or reach out to me, I may take a little longer than normal to get back. <laughs> I've got a lot going on in my life right now, but, um, I still love being a part of Baymont and being a part of Slack. It's something that, gave me a lot of life and a lot of strength, especially going through chemo and radiation. Um, so please don't stop those questions from coming. Uh, I really enjoyed that. In fact, I think this teaching is something I wrote when we were, uh, undergoing chemo and radiation. Um, but anyway, I've, I've, uh, really what I would like to say to the, the audience is like, you know, please be praying for me. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on. It's a complicated, difficult process. And um, you can actually follow my journey at a, a website we've got set up uh, over at uh, uh, caringbridge.com. My wife, uh, you'll get to know her a little bit better. She writes little updates about our journey and what's going on. So you can be praying for specific things. Um, and uh, you can also, you know, send us encouraging notes, stuff like that. That really meant a lot to me when I was going through the uh, chemo and radiation. So, please feel free to reach out and support. And um, also if God puts it on your heart, you know, you can definitely uh, support us financially. Um, uh, you know, I, you can always go to impacttheu.com and support uh, my ministry. You know, there's definitely some new expenses that are going on with, uh, uh, with a transplant, lots of new medications and procedures and stuff like that. And um, uh Anyway, we would just appreciate whatever support uh, you need. We've, we've already been overwhelmed, really, by the support that we've gotten. And it's been a really beautiful process and uh, learning to rest in whole new ways. Um, 
<laughs> but uh yeah, I just wanted to invite the audience into that and uh yeah, I think that's all I got to say. Yeah, so I'll have links uh for all of that in the show notes if you want to if, if you've never been on the Slack and you want to converse with Josh about the things we talk about on Bama, he uh always if he responds if he's able to respond he will give a full response oh, um, yes. <laughs> which is which is great um and then the caring bridge thing for for updates on your health and that i want to point out one of the things about that is sharing those encouraging notes and getting updates about josh's health through that caring bridge site rather than inundating josh with a bunch of random messages on slack <laughs> yes. or email or whatever else that way, Josh can, like, when he's feeling good, he can get on Slack and discuss the text and engage that way and be fulfilled in that way and then not have to worry about, like, answering a 100 questions about how he's doing because it is, it's going to vary a lot from day to day, week to week, month to month. It's up and down. Oh, yeah. And, you know, you, you end up telling, you know, when you have cancer, you end up talking about cancer a lot. And so it's nice not to have to tell the same story and give the same update a hundred times a day. Yeah. So I've, I've really appreciated that. Yeah. And the updates are, are great. Like Sophia has been posting and I think there's a couple other people involved posting um, a little bit as well. So like yeah. if you sign up for that, you're going to get updates. So mm-hmm. you'll know when something is happening um, with Josh's health. So I would encourage people to sign up for that. And then of course, uh, if you do want to support Josh and his ministry in Cincinnati financially, we'll have that link there as well. So, yes, absolutely. Thank you. Now let's get into the text. Yeah. John 10. John 10. Now um, we're going to do something a little bit different this time. I'm going to have Brent read through the whole passage relatively undisturbed by me because um, one of the things we're going to go into is that I think this particular chunk of John is chiastic. Um, pretty much lining up. Uh, there, there's a little bit of preamble at the beginning that doesn't quite fit in, uh, lies a little bit outside the bookends. And I'll be kind of pointing out where I see those uh, those different points lining up. But um, we're going to read through this and uh, see some chiastic structure that I'll point out. And uh, so, yeah, Brent, let her rip. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you now, do this not is... believe. Oh, shoot, we, we, we should have worked out how I, how I interrupt you. <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> you just interrupt as you need. Um, so, yeah, this is right about when the chiasm begins. We'll see toward the very, very end of the story that the themes of belief um, are going to come up again, uh, but very much contrasted. But this is uh, going to end up being what Jesus is really driving at here, this idea of belief um, and specifically belief attached to works. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Mm, I'm going to stop you again here. Remember that phrase, snatching out of the hand. Um, that's going to be one that comes back up again. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the father. For which of these do you stone me? 
We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Mm. And this will also be important. Let's remember that, because that line in particular, you being a man, make yourself out to be God, that is going to be important on a couple levels. But this is also right around, the next couple of verses are going to be the center of the chiasm, which I'll let you read without me interrupting at all. And also of note on the blasphemy thing, the NET footnotes points out that this is the first time in John that he is explicitly uh, labeled as, uh, his actions are explicitly labeled as blasphemy by the people. Yes. And that, and that'll be very important too. There, yeah, we have some meat on the bones for that. <laughs> Jesus answered them. Is it not written in your law? I have said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside. What about the one whom the father set apart at his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. Do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. And I'll stop you here again, because uh, we, we see, I, I hope you can all hear that the the themes of like belief and works are heavy in this, but also this is going to be linking up to the little ditty Jesus was saying right before he drops the remez on them about... Um, you are gods when they were talking about good works and stoning. And now he's talking about good works and stoning. Again, we're seeing now we're on the backside of the chiasm, seeing all that come together. Go ahead and keep reading. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Ah, and here we have another repetition. The sheep are in Jesus' hands and no one can snatch them away. But when they reach their hand out to snatch Jesus, and in fact, I believe the word grasp there is identical in the Greek. They can't grasp him. Mm. I may have to check that out, uh, verify that. Um, <laughs> then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true, and in that place many believed in Jesus. There we go, ending again on a note about belief. Um, and this time, notably, belief, and they emphasize that it's they didn't even see a, a work from John, and yet they still believed. So, a lot of chiastic structure here, all pointing to that center chunk, uh, Jesus quoting from Psalm 82, you are gods. Um, now, there's a lot of, uh, in addition to that chiastic structure, I hope as we were listening to this, that uh, we were also had our Bema caps on and were thinking of problems and questions and things that didn't really sound right. And I'd like to kind of go through and talk about some of those. Just, just to verify the, the word for grasp there, uh, is the same is the word for hand, uh, which is the same word that appears previously. So yes, you got it. Bingo beautiful. I love it. So now one other thing that you shared with me actually before we recorded is that this is the one and only time the Feast of Dedication, um, otherwise known as the Festival of Light or Hanukkah in uh, modern parlance, one and only time it's ever mentioned in the scripture. So I mean, first of all, John calls it out as the time this is taking place. So that's significant. Um, 
but also like why does Jesus go to Jerusalem in the first place? Like there's certain festivals that you're supposed to go up to Jerusalem for. Um Passover, I think Shavuot, uh, I'm gonna bail on this one because I don't remember. <laughs> but uh <laughs> shoot, I'm, well, I'm this, uh, showing my deficiencies there. This festival is not in Torah. This came no. later uh, like 150 years before Jesus or something like that. Yes. And this will be very important because this, yeah, this was relatively brand new. So this was, um, yeah, let actually let's go over it for the folks at home who don't know. So this is, um, traditionally when we talk about Hanukkah, we talk about the miracle of, um, during the revolt against, uh, the, uh, Greeks, there was a period of time where they couldn't, make new oil for the menorah in the temple. And there was this miracle where one day's worth of oil lasted eight days, which is why Hanukkah is sometimes called the festival of lights. It's why it lasts eight days, but it's really celebrating, you know, the retaking of the temple from the Greeks after crucially it was, um, defiled by Antiochus for Epiphanes, um, specifically or and and one of the key things there that um comes up later is that he um sacrifices a pig on the altar and calls himself god which i hope we hear that there's some themes john's playing on there <laughs> um, <laughs> so <clears throat> the question is like why is jesus here why do we need to know that this festival is going on but there's a bigger question i think there which is that do you remember the other name i told you this was called uh this festival yeah festival of lights festival of lights now if i'm thinking about john he just passed up an opportunity to talk about light. Yeah. John not talking about light when he has a clear layup to talk about light. Why the heck does he call it the feast of dedication and not just call it the feast of lights and talk about mm-hmm. light and darkness and these people are in darkness and what, why would John miss this opportunity? Hmm. Strange. And the other thing is like, he specifically puts Jesus in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. Mm-hmm. And the whole point of the colonnade is the opening in the roof to let light in. Yes. <laughs> that's really good. I didn't even think about that. Oh, yes, absolutely. No, that's a great point. Yeah. John could have been all over light in this passage, but no mention of light. What the heck, John? So that's that's problem number one. What's going on with this Hanukkah business? Why isn't it focused on light? Why is it focused on the dedication of the temple? Um, second of all, uh, there's this kind of weird tension in how Jesus addresses, uh, his audience, which in this case, these are, uh, Judeans, probably Sadducee types. They're hanging around the temple. Um, and we should also note they're pretty immediately unfriendly with him. Um, the word it uses in verse 24, it says the, uh, the Jews, which, you know, the constant mistranslation should be Judeans. The Judeans surround him. It's the same word for like a siege. They, they surround him and begin asking him to, uh, to tell them if he's the Messiah. Um, my translation here says plainly, but it can also mean publicly. So it seems like they're trying to, to bait him. They're trying to trap him pretty, uh, pretty plainly. Um, and Jesus like, doesn't, you know, he, he sidesteps their question. Right. But then, 
he goes and says, I and the father are one, like makes this like super heretical sounding statement. Like why play coy about being Messiah if you're gonna, uh, you know, uh, uh, slyly like kind of almost call yourself God. Like what, what is Jesus playing at there? To me, that's really interesting. Like what the heck is Jesus doing? Why are you, why are you beating around the bush with the Messiah thing? If you're gonna, um, rock them with this I and the father are one business. Um, and then the other thing that stands out to me and kind of doesn't sound or doesn't really make sense on a surface level reading is like, what is Jesus's defense here? Like it, it feels like such a technicality, like, Oh no, it's okay for me to say that. Cause in the scripture, it says you are gods, which is like, okay, does that mean just you can call anyone gods? And it's all like, what? Like, that, <laughs> what is Jesus's actual argument there? What is going on here? And uh, also before that, like the other big contextual thing is that, you know, if you're listening to the last episode, all this talk about sheep and stuff in God's hand, like that's pretty similar to what Jesus was just talking about. So like, what is he, what is he trying to communicate? Why is he bringing that teaching to this specific audience? Um, And that's actually the first thing I want to tackle because I think it ends up answering all these questions. So to go back to the beginning, you know, why is Jesus here at Hanukkah? Why is he here talking about, um, the sheep and all that? Well, it has something to do with the temple. Obviously John's focusing it on the, the festival of dedication. So Jesus is going from wherever he was. He has this dynamite teaching about sheep and he says, Ooh, you know what? It's Hanukkah. I could take this to the temple. I could really rock some, some Sadducee brains over there. Um, but <laughs> what is he, what is he actually trying to say? And, uh, uh, so let me, I'm just going to go back in, uh, read through the first thing he says to the Judeans. Um, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name. These testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Then he kind of repeats himself. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Again, kind of a confusing answer to their question of like, are you the Messiah? And then (laughs) this big detour talking about sheep. So first of all, what is Jesus talking about with the sheep thing? And for that, um, I'm pretty sure this is, I, I've got a very solid lock on this. I've got two remezes I think Jesus is working off here. The first one I'm very sure about. The second one I'm pretty sure about, but not quite as solid. Sounds good. The first one, I think uh, Jesus is reading right out of Psalm 95. So Brandon, if you want to go ahead and read that for us. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Hmm. Today, if only you would hear his voice, 
Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For forty years I was angry with that generation. I said, They are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, They shall never enter my rest. Mm. All right, now there's a couple things I want to point out there because we were, I think we were working off some different translations. So the key verse that tied it all up for me was uh, verse seven, where it says, uh, uh, and this is what it says in the NASB, we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And in fact, there's a lot of hand talk all throughout there, as well as the same thing Jesus, you know, goes out of his way to say God who is above all. And it mentions there that God is a great king above all gods, lots of, uh, harmony there and talking about like uh specifically uh god's people being uh under god's protection but that also there is this rebellion side of things this generation that is not going to enter god's rest that is going to receive god's anger and i think that's really what jesus is trying to say to the judeans like god's got us but if you're going to be rebelling against god like you might be uh, cut out of that picture, friends. Um, it's a very uh, challenging thing to be throwing at them. And then um, when he gets to the I and the Father are one thing, man, that one stunned me for a while. I was like, why does Jesus say I and the Father are one? Like he could he could have said a lot of things there, but why I and the Father are one? And I'm pretty sure there he is going to be remezzing uh, Malachi chapter 2, specifically verses 10 through 12. Mm-hmm. So if you want to go ahead and read that, Brent. Yeah, and just a note on uh, the translation thing. The NET is really good for this kind of stuff because they will they will translate things like that, that verse seven, uh, the NET mm-hmm. translates it, the sheep he owns, but then they have a footnote that says the Hebrew literally says the sheep of his hand. Yes. So, uh, it's, and like, you know, there's, uh, 20 footnotes on that one <laughs> Psalm. And, <laughs> and bet. a lot of the footnotes are like, here's what the Hebrew literally says in, in relation to how we're translating it. So, um, I would, uh, another another point to the NET for that one. Another point to the NET. Yeah, I, I like their stuff. Yeah, the always got to know what the literal Hebrew is saying. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, Malachi 2. Do we not all have one father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign God. Mm. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Mm. Oh my goodness. What a what a potent slap in the face for the people who are A, running the temple, and especially the the Judah Judeans play. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. And uh, uh, again, we have that like one father, one God thing. And it seems like the way Jesus kind of does a funny thing in John where at first he says, I and the father are one. And then he comes back and like re-explains what he said is like, I am the son of the father. <laughs> like kind of like we're, we're one in, in spirit almost, uh, seems to be how he recontextualizes it, which is how Malachi two talks about God's oneness that it's like, we're, we all, we all have one 
one father. But specifically, and this is why I feel like this would be such a juicy remez, is that he goes right from we should be united to not only are you dealing treacherously, this kind of like ups the ante from the challenge of Psalm 95. Like it isn't just rebellion. It's like you're betraying your own brothers. And not only that, you are profaning the sanctuary. Like what a crazy thing to throw at them in the middle of Hanukkah. Where he says, you're the ones profaning the sanctuary. We kicked out the Greeks and that that's what we're celebrating. But you're still profaning the sanctuary, dude. You didn't You didn't fix the problem. You're the problem. Oh, my goodness. And then it ends with the, you know, uh, uh, saying that, you know, everyone who does this, may the Lord eliminate them from the tents of Jacob. Um, and anyone who presents an offering, like just a total denunciation kind of of the uh, of their whole of their whole thing. <laughs> like, dang. <sighs> dang, Jesus. And for me, I feel like that's where, you know, uh on one level, this is what this is like the content of what Jesus is trying to tell them. He's saying, like, you know, you are you as the the like the priestly class have so totally failed in um like following Torah, you know, I mean, I guess the most basic thing we could say in Bema speak is like you're you're not you're not trusting the story, you're not leading us in the story. Um <clears throat> but he also does it in this way where on the surface level, um, he kind of plays into the thing that they're going to be really high strung about, which is, you know, remembering this whole Greek, uh, 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 oppression and, um, and specifically the, the defilement of the temple and someone proclaiming themselves to be God. And so he kind of tricks them into almost like overreacting on that, um, missing all the content or, or so that they don't really respond to any of the content. He says, they just get caught off guard by like this really incendiary remark. Jesus makes I and the father are one, which both clinches his remez. And like I said, kind of sends them spiraling to where they are freaking out about that. And um, so then I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, they obviously, like you said, this is the first time anyone's actually accused him of blasphemy. They actually pick up stones to stone him. And then Jesus is kind of like, why would you stone me? Like, what did I do? What did I do wrong? You got kind of playing dumb in a brilliant way. And he makes them stay, say specifically, you've just called yourself God. And I think he... I think Jesus literally had all this planned out because Jesus has in the barrel just the most brilliant remez, the center of this chiasm, Psalm 82. And it's, I'm just going to tell you in advance, it's going to take the same message of spiritual leadership having not just rebelled against God, like not just dealt treacherously with their brothers, but like even gone farther than that. And that God is God is losing patience with them. God is done with them that their their um their bills are coming due in terms of their responsibility to God. And he he basically tricks them into setting him up for the most brilliant remez possible in this situation. So anyway, enough gushing for me. Well, and and this this remez is so obvious that it's actually in the footnotes. <laughs> oh <laughs> versus, yes, yeah, versus the other two that are not listed. <laughs> Yeah, this one Jesus literally quotes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and the other thing on the blasphemy thing, so it kind of goes the same way. 
So the other time this happened was in John 8, at the end of John 8. And it's where Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am. Mm -hmm. And then everybody picked up stones, but then he just slipped out. Mm -hmm. But in John 10, they, he says, whatever he says, and then they pick up stones. But this time, instead of slipping away, he actually confronts them. He's like, well, so, so what exactly did I do that you're stoning me for? And that's when they actually explicitly say, uh, we're not stoning you for the things you did. We're stoning you for blasphemy. So (laughs) it's, it's interesting that it, it kind of played out the same way, but then Jesus, uh, Jesus took it a different direction this time and actually confronted them about it. And, you know, I wonder too, if it's like, you know, we, we talk a lot about how easy it is to forget the humanity of Jesus. And I wonder if it's like, you know, people start picking up stones to stone you. I'd, I'd be out of there pretty quick. And maybe it's like, because it already happened once he's like, all right, I can handle this. Let me try and talk to him. Yeah. 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 (laughs) He's a little bit braver this time, you know, he, uh, or, or just more ready to like, I mean, you know, we've seen this progression, like, uh, like the wedding at Cana and Mary says, well, why don't you take care of this? And he's like, ah, my hour's not come. Yeah. I'm not ready. (laughs) And like, as we get deeper into John, it's like, oh, I'm not ready to, to confront, like, I'm going to say what I'm going to say, but when they want to confront me about it, like, I'm just going to slip away. Like, we're not going to have this battle now. We'll do this later. Yeah. So, and he's still like, we're at the festival of dedication. Now it's not going to be until the following Passover when things yeah. really get crazy again. So he's still not quite there, but he's more confrontational about it. So. Oh yeah. Oh man. That's so interesting. Yeah. You can like kind of plot this as, as Jesus getting closer to like facing down the crucifixion. Oh man. Yeah. That's great. Okay. Psalm 82. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said you are gods, but you are all sons of the Most High. But you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God. Judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. (sighs) Well, I think we can already probably hear just on a surface level some of the continuation of these themes. But before diving into that, I actually want to step back and just talk about this psalm in its own context. Um, And uh, uh, I really got to give a shout out to uh, my Havara here, specifically Rachel Bergman, who is a brilliant person I've been studying with for a while, and she is uh, got a lot of uh, knowledge. She's she's done a lot of study in ancient Near East history, um, and I'm really bad at history, so we complement each other well. And what she's shared with me about this is that out of like all the psalms, this one really sticks out. It is just such a strange psalm because. On a literary level, what it bears the most similarity to is like Baal poetry, and specifically this thing called the Baal cycle, um, which wasn't unique to Baal necessarily. It was basically um, a syncretic way that like uh, empires would handle merging pantheons. So it's like you know if you conquer someone else they have their own gods, but you want to institute your gods, and so you have to create this narrative where it's like well 
you know, our gods knew each other or like our gods were the next generation that rose up and, you know, took over their parents' jobs, basically. Like if you're, if you're familiar with Greek mythology, it's kind of like how the Titans were there and then the, you know, Zeus and all his crew rise up and, you know, take over shop. And that's basically what this poetry falls in line with is this tradition of that kind of poetry. And it's weird because one, it kind of bucks against the clear monotheism that the Bible teaches about. Um, but what's really interesting and, and kind of makes this, uh, subversive to that literary thing, much like, you know, the early creation narratives were, um, is that, you know, the reason why the gods would overthrow each other usually was because like, you know, oh, we're stronger and you're, you're old and you suck and we're, we're young and we, we conquered you. But in this one, the reason why Adonai is kicking out all the other gods is because of what they judged unjustly. And not only that, they, they didn't just judge unjustly, they showed partiality to the wicked. Like they favored <laughs> the wicked over the just like, oh my gosh, vindicate the weak and fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and destitute, rescue the weak and needy, save them from the hand of the wicked. Like this is a, a deep subversion of that whole genre. So that's like this psalm in its own context, kind of taking that idea of why Adonai is seated above all the other gods, all the other religions, all the other worldviews out there is because God will do this stuff. God will, uh, uh, you know, do justice, basically. And that's like their assertion of what makes Adonai unique. And man, if you want to read some like different possibilities on how this translates, the NET footnotes have quite a bit of stuff. Oh, gosh. Like, yeah, I bet. The NIV takes it as uh, God presides in the great assembly. Uh, what it literally says is the assembly of El, mm, mm-hmm. as in like we, we think Elohim for the God that we talk about, but El would just mean God, like with a lowercase g. Um, and the the NET takes it to mean the, the God El of the Canaanite world. Yes, um, yeah. And then other translations... Um, understand L to just be a name that God has taken on mm-hmm. in addition to whatever. So, uh, lots of, lots of possibilities to like wrestle with. And there's, uh, there's references and sources that you can look into as well. If you're more interested in the history of this. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's, it's a buck wild song. And there are so many, like you said, there are a lot of different ways to approach, like how this is commenting on that kind of polytheistic pantheon, uh, worldview that it was speaking into. And I don't want to get lost in the weeds there because yeah. Jesus takes the Psalm in a totally wild direction. And it's interesting what, to what the translators do with it. Like the NEV or the NIV seems very, uh, uncomfortable with the whole concept because <laughs> yes, very like, much so. <laughs> God's is all in quotation marks, which you don't get from, from how I read it. But like all of those yeah. instances of God's that's in quotation marks. Whereas the NET does not do that. And they're looking at the assembly of L versus the greatest. So it's like, depending on what you, what you feel like this Psalm could be talking about. It's, yeah, it's a, something to wrestle with for sure. <laughs> yes. And that's why I, I want to, you know, for all the people out there who are also getting uncomfortable, like that's a literary thing, you know, it's uh, you can, you can read it in that way just fine. And again, Jesus is going to take this in a totally different direction because in verse 35, here's how Jesus interprets it. 
He says, if he, meaning the writer, the author of that psalm, or God, if he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, which means Jesus is reading this psalm as if the assembly of gods are the people who received Torah, meaning that he's talking about the same back, the the Psalm 95 reference of the generation that rebelled at Masa and Meribah. Jesus is saying, no, you know, you know who the actual gods that thing is talking about were? The people who received the words of God, the people who represented God, who who had Torah. That's what elevated them to be called the gods. And it's so brilliant because then he takes this whole psalm and flips it around to be literally about the the about spiritual leadership and and the the generations that came before that are responsible for representing God to the next generation to say this is who Adonai is this is what he's like which is also who the Judeans are they run the temple they're the ones telling everyone this is what God looks like like we have a literal monopoly on the temple on showing you who God is and what God's all about and not only have you like just not lived up to the story not only have you kind of rebelled against God not only have you like failed to live up to the story you've actually like shown partiality to the wicked like you've become the anti-story like you you are um ripe to be thrown out like for god to rise up and just cast this whole assembly out like jesus really ups the ante and sharpens the critique against them by by you know it's not just that you're not doing a great job it's not just that you you know aren't following all the torah commandments it's that you're actually like you are like literally what the psalm said you're judging unjustly you're showing partiality to the wicked you would rather have the wicked win than the good guys like oh my goodness i do find it interesting that jesus refers to it as written in the law right but it's actually from the writings and i think this is where the i I was confused by that too but if he's interpreting the people receiving torah as like that is giving them this like quote unquote godhood. Maybe what he's saying there is that um, the the scripture cannot be nullified in that like we, we can't deny that the people who screwed up and rebelled against God were also the ones who received Torah. Like right. they saw Mount Sinai and they also did this. Like you can't say that didn't happen. They literally heard God speak and then they rebelled and he's pointing it back at them saying that's that's you you've received torah you know the words and and look what you're doing and i feel like this is such a potent message like i i hope when like the first thing that came to my mind when i thought about this stuff is uh and i'm sure a lot of listeners probably had the same thought uh which is that like you know we we see a lot of parallels to this in uh, the church today, specifically around like sex scandals and stuff like that, where it's like, oh, these big church institutions, like m- maybe, you know, the, the issue isn't even that like, oh, maybe I don't like their interpretation or their theology is garbage, but like, oh no, they're protecting people who are abusive. They're, they're reinforcing these structures that, that literally hurt people and, you know, make money off of it, all this stuff. So I feel like this is, this is a very, potent message for this moment that we're in. But I, I kind of want to, um, I don't want to diminish that in any means. Cause that I think is a 
huge problem and, and, you know, bears its own, um, episode dealing with it, to be honest. Um, but you know, that's like the, the headline grabbing thing. Like we feel that in our guts. Like when we see, um, something about like, you know, sexual abuse in a, in a, church or something like that. Like it, it hits us in our stomach and we, we feel awful about it. But what I want to talk about a little bit is how, like, there are a whole host of other things where it, we don't even get hit in the stomach. And I feel like, you know, it, it's one thing to, to point at these big problems that are, um, you know, like I'm not personally, you know, harassing anyone or, uh, creating a toxic culture or whatever the heck it is. Um, it's easy to push that off onto the other people, the bad people that are, you know, up in the halls of power and whatever. Mm. And again, this speaks directly to those people. And, um, and I certainly hope to God that there is a lot of repentance that happens there, but, to focus this on something that is more rooted in us and what we can do. What I want to draw our attention to is something that I've never heard any church talk about, like liberal or conservative, big, small, mega church, you know, tiny community church, just stuff that we don't talk about. And one of the ones that really hits me hard, especially being a student of Torah, um, you know, it's my favorite thing to study. It's what I'm most knowledgeable in of all the Bible. And that's um, business practices, which when I say that, I'm sure, you know, all of us are like, oh, okay, yeah, that doesn't hit me in the stomach. <laughs> that doesn't like, that doesn't make me go, oh, yeah, uh, shady business practices. But it's it's just as much as something where it's like, you know, we know it happens all the time, but we don't talk about it. And we especially like to talk about things like, um, sexuality and, and gender and all sorts of stuff like that. And of course there's a lot of rich irony there and that that's an area we like to police when at the same time we uh, are often very abusive in our institutions along those same lines. But like, you know, we, we just had a pandemic where a whole bunch of people lost their jobs and like how, how many um, like Christian landlords evicted someone just because they couldn't pay their rent or, you know, uh, uh, someone was fired just because they didn't work enough hours. And there's like, you know, of all the things in Torah that are clearest to see like God's intention and easiest to like transition from ancient context to our context, like laws about employer employee relationships are pretty cut and dry. Like things like, you know, paying your workers on time, even like there's a verse that says like, you can't take away someone's millstone, their, their source of livelihood, uh, just because they owe you money. And like, there are so many implications of these things that, that are just as life altering. Like this is where people get their healthcare from. This is how people feed their kids. And we rarely, if ever talk about, you know, our hiring, firing practices, landlord policies, like all sorts of stuff like that. And yeah, it's like, it doesn't, it's not headline grabbing. It doesn't hit us in our stomach, but it's just as often like how many Christian organizations um, are run in such a way that is uh, oppressive along those kind of uh, economic lines, how many Christians just go to church. And again, like this isn't even like a pointing the finger thing. It's, it's something we just don't talk about and don't feel strongly about, but how often do we have systems that just like it talks about in the Psalm, like favor the wicked? 
how many things we have that are unjust, that don't vindicate the weak, don't vindicate the fatherless, don't do justice to the afflicted and destitute. And we're just like, ah, well, that's just doing business in America. Or even simpler than that. It's like, ah, it's just business. Exactly. It's not personal. It's just business. Ah, exactly. Exactly. And so like when I feel that fire rise up in me, when I hear about another big Christian organization that's abusive to women and has all these sexual dynamics that are uh, oppressive and ugly and absolutely ungodly, like how many more things are just don't ever make headlines because it's just, that eh, it's just doing business. And it's like, if I'm going to have that much fire for people's lives being ruined in one way, like, why is that not there for other cases of clear injustice? And like, and like, again, like it, it's not even that I, I like know the numbers and can like tell you how big of a problem it is. Like, I don't know how big of a problem it is because we don't even talk about it and let alone think about it. And that's something I would like to invite us all into because the kind of judgment that Jesus is laying out here is severe. Like, like, let's go back that the, um, Psalm 95 Ramez ended with, they won't enter God's rest. Like that's a big statement. Psalm 82 is all about, it ends with arise God and judge the earth. Like God is willing to shake up the order of things in radical ways. And, uh, well, there's some things that are real easy for us to point the finger at. And then there's other things like, like this, that I feel like are so ingrained in our culture and in the world we live in that we just take for granted. And it's like, we, we have got to wake up and we have got to repent in serious ways and, and inspect our own lives. And like, how, how am I, how am I involved in that? How many times have I turned a blind eye? How many times have I just not cared? And I'm going to soften that a little bit because I feel like when we start talking about justice issues, it's very easy to get burned out on care. And like, you know, you have to care about everything. Um, And there's, you know, a bajillion problems in the world, but just to, to start looking in the mirror at, and, and think about like, how, how does our church run? Like if your church has a coffee shop, how does that work? Like who, who, how are employees being treated? How are, people being hired and fired are like, again, all the stuff we talk about with rest and productivity. Like if we just flip that around for a second and think like how many people are just fired by Christians because they're not productive enough. Like, what does that say? And how does God feel about that? My goodness. I'm, I'm thinking of the flip side of this, the, the ideal situation, like what God has called us to. Uh, I hear this passage all the time because my wife has it memorized and she's working on it with Darius, but um, Isaiah 58 and specifically like if you do away with the yoke of, of oppression with the pointing finger and malicious talk and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed mm. then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday the Lord will guide you always he will satisfy your needs in a sun scorched land and will strengthen your frame you will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. Mm. That's what we're supposed to be. Oh. That's what that's what we become when we spend ourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed. Oh, that's so beautiful. Man, straight off the... That, 
Thank you for sharing that, Brent Owens. My goodness. <laughs> I'm telling you, I hear this all the time. Oh, that's so great. <laughs> Darius so really great. loves the pointing <laughs> finger. <laughs> he loves that part. Oh, that's so cute. I can imagine that now. That's great. Oh my goodness. Yeah, absolutely. Like the, the scripture gives us so much imagery about like what it could be like if we just let go of, uh, of business as usual, you know, um, and, uh, oppressing others and profiting off of their misery. But you know, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely easier to say than do. And I want to make that clear because I'm talking on a podcast. <laughs> And I feel like that always, uh, is worth mentioning. Like, uh, I'm not uh, over here saying I got it all figured out, but like we can at least be talking about it and start to look at it. Cause I don't know how else we're going to pull together some real genuine repentance that, um, and you know, I, I'm not here saying like, you know, God's going to judge America in one month or whatever, but it's, it's just like, I, I don't know. I don't feel like we, we should be like, Oh, we have a lot of time on the clock. I, I don't feel comfortable just being like, ah, it'll probably be fine. Let's, let's just pass this off to the next generation. Like, I don't know. Um, it feels, uh, it's it striking chords within me that, that the spirits laying down and uh, that feels, uh, uh, like something we should really be listening to. Yeah. And like, I don't, I don't think I'm that weird of a person, <laughs> in in my situation um but i've definitely thought about this in the last couple of years like as the pandemic was happening first of all i was i was planning on doing an airbnb in my basement and ended up um ended up having somebody who needed a, a place to stay and was renting my basement instead mm -hmm. um but if i had done the airbnb thing and had been depending on that income mm -hmm. and then everything shut down and there was no travel, nobody staying any place like that, that would have, that would have been a bad deal for me. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm imagining there's a lot of people who didn't last minute have somebody rent their place and they were stuck with their Airbnb and they weren't getting anybody. And like, if the person who had been living in my basement had lost their job, like I thought about this, like, what if they lose their job? Like, what mm -hmm. do I do? Because yeah. my mortgage payment isn't going to stop. I have to come up with the money somehow. Can I do that? Like I, I wrestled through that and I didn't have a situation come up where I actually had to, to do anything. Um, but I definitely thought about it. Yeah. And I would imagine we have quite a few listeners who have some sort of property or, or own a business or, or have something like, mm -hmm. and probably a lot of them had to make really tough decisions. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's not, yeah, it's, it's not easy. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's not something you can switch, flip a switch at the end of the day. You're not, you're not the top of the stack. Most of the time, mm -hmm. <laughs> you're not the ultimate call. Like, sure. You could, you could let somebody live in your rental property for free, but then the bank doesn't care about your <laughs> yes. values. The bank doesn't care what Torah says. Yeah. They say exactly. you need to make your payment. The, you know, so yeah, it's, it's not easy. There's no, there's no simple answers because it's a complicated world. It's a complicated system. Exactly. Yeah. We, we can't just call a Jubilee and be like, oh yeah, this year's Jubilee. So everyone <laughs> gets released from their, uh, their debts, <laughs> right. but it it's like, but, but I think that, and, and that's where I, I hope that the, the 
call of this episode isn't like to isn't to point the finger and wag and be like, oh, you naughty, naughty people for not giving everything away for free. Because yeah, we're all living in the same capitalist system. And like you said, we're not on the the top of the heap. There are there are pressures that push down and and uh, push us in those directions. And I think this question isn't so much like how do we just ignore that, but like how do we actually wisely push back against that. But it, if you don't go into it with that intention, you're just going to go, you're just going to do business as usual because that's the path of least resistance. That's what everyone else is doing. And we're far, far too comfortable just saying like, Hey, like you said, Hey, that's business, man. Like, it's just, uh, it is what it is. And it's like, ah, it, I I don't feel okay there, you know? Yeah. And um, at the end of the day, you may have to make a call that really sucks but are you wrestling with it or are you just saying not my problem? And also I, I think that it's like, it's, it's a lot harder to make that call when you're just you, but when we're a body like that makes it a lot easier to handle these problems, to get, to get more perspective on them and uh, hopefully to like find solutions. So we do have that, um, that whole Isaiah, picture like that like you know we're not going to get there tomorrow we're not going to get there in next generation like again we're talking about tamarisk trees we're talking about something that's you know maybe a hundred years away but you know we we can't get there yeah like you said as individuals we just have a bunch of tough decisions that we don't actually have that much freedom in but as a body there's a lot we can do like we know there is power in that and um and if we started harnessing that power and focusing it on God's priorities. I think, I think we would see the spirit move in some big ways. All right. Was that our episode? That's our episode. Okay. Well, if you want to get a hold of Marty and tell him, uh, what you think about this, (laughs) you can find him on Twitter at Marty Sullivan. I don't know if I should do the outro the same way when Marty's not on the episode. (laughs) Yeah. Let's see. You can, you can send me any angry email at uh, midrashjosh at gmail.com. Perfect. (laughs) Well, you can get a hold of me on Twitter at EIBCB. Uh, Josh and I are both on Slack, so that's that's another great uh, spot to to catch up. And then you can find more details about the show at BaymontEstablishment.com. Be sure to check out the show notes of this episode. Uh, sign up for Josh's Caring Bridge so you can get updates on his health and uh, and support him if, uh, if that's something you feel led to do as well. So thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. Man, good stuff with that Isaiah passage. That was such an amazing pull. I love that, man. Dude, yeah. It, it, when you said pointing finger, like... <laughs> yes. Like that, that's what I was like, oh, yeah. And then I looked up the passage because I knew like... Like it's a long chapter. It's not that long. It's only 14 verses, but like there's a lot to it. Um, but like that passage surrounding that particularly... Uh, was just like right where it needed to be. And I'm so glad we have that too, because when we do the John six rewind stuff, there's a part in it that, that flows so well with that. I'm going to have to do a callback when we do it. Cause it's, it's really, really good.